Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, your weekly insight into the most significant conservative ideas being discussed right now all across America. From policymakers to grassroots activists, and from thought leaders to elected leaders, each week we bring you the people and the ideas shaping the American Republic. Brought to you with a dose of Texas, where Lone Star Liberty shines brighter than ever. Welcome again to the Foundation Podcast, a production of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. With me today are two esteemed guests, some gentlemen I have the pleasure of working with each day. Rob Hinnicky, our general counsel and head of our Center for the American Future, which is a fancy name for our group of lawyers who like to sue government officials who challenge our liberty. And also Drew White, who has been doing heroic work on behalf of our Center for Tenth Amendment Action. He's at the tip of the spear regarding our work in D.C. And in fact, that is the subject for today's podcast, Washington, D.C. We know that in some circles is referred to as the swamp, which as I try to remind people is literally true. Washington, D.C. was and is a swamp. But now figuratively, it certainly is a swamp that needs to be cleaned out. What we want to do on the podcast today is not necessarily continue to rail against Washington, although that's tempting, but offer some solutions because ultimately all of us who work here at the foundation, actually most conservatives and liberty-minded people I've encountered in life are optimists. And those of you listening to today's episode will have the benefit of hearing from two people who will not take credit for what they've done, but who've been really important, especially in the last year and pushing back on government overreach, on challenges to our liberty. And I think you're going to be sort of receive a shot in the arm today based on what they have to say. So Rob and Drew, what is the general climate in Washington, D.C.? And I mean that figuratively. I know right now it's cold. Hmm. But the political climate, the legal climate, the regulatory climate, and we'll take that as our, our starting point, and then talk in some more detail about particular policies, particular legal cases that our listeners may be interested in. Well, I think in many ways I would describe Washington, D.C. right now as being in chaos. But I say that as a good thing because the status quo of not just the past administration, but the past several decades has been in growing Washington, D.C., growing the power of Washington, D.C., growing the power of the bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., as especially the executive branch has continued to uh, explode, add more personnel and, you know, grow itself more into the personal lives of everyday American. Uh, Just a couple of tidbits, factoids that are out there, but consider the Environmental Protection Agency as an example. When President Ronald Reagan uh, his administration, EPA, had approximately 5,000 employees. At its pinnacle in between the, uh, uh, during the Obama administration, EPA had grown to over 17,000 employees, more than threefold, uh, in a period of time when you're also seeing great successes, especially in what uh, states were accomplishing in decreasing uh, pollution and also, you know, regulating at the state level for a cleaner environment. You know, the administrative state is one that, if the regulatory burden that ordinary Americans feel from government regulations were a country, 
in 2014, that burden is quantified at $1.86 trillion, which would make that country the 10th largest economy in the world in between India and Italy. And so the chaos is that that status quo is under attack. Now, President Trump has put some amazing people in office that are the adults in the room, that are the calm hand on the tiller. But the very foundation of the D.C. power base is under attack, has been under attack in 2017. That's good for America, but it has certainly turned the the cart upside down. What do you think, Drew? Yeah, no, I I think that's... um I think that's largely an, an accurate assessment of what we're looking at in Washington. And, you know, not only would I say it's chaotic up there, but uh, it, it's been a welcome dose of chaos for a culture in D.C., as Kevin referred to as the swamp, that uh, is embedded and entrenched and is resistant of having their power challenged. And as you mentioned, we've seen that in the administrative state. We've seen that with um Lawyers at, at the Department of Justice refusing to step down. You've seen this with people assuming control over, uh, you know, the community, uh, excuse me, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, even though clearly this individual did not have a clear sort of pathway to assuming the directorship here. You're seeing the bureaucrats and sort of the professional entrenched political class up there, the, the career class, uh, really resisting the chaos that's been injected with uh, President Trump's agenda. And of course, for you know everyday Americans, as they're seeing these regulations roll back, as they're seeing uh, everything from environmental regulations to the Department of Education's overreach being challenged and pulled back, and the power of bureaucrats really being um, restrained, well, they're actually seeing decision making and power returning to their households, returning to their uh, states and their communities, and they're seeing the, I guess the you could put it, the consequentialness of Washington D.C. is being utterly challenged. I think that's ultimately a very positive thing. Uh, but obviously, you're, you're seeing that the chaos does have some downsides as well. We can get into that if, if we'd like. And it's been, it's been in many ways an attempted mutiny. I mean, you mentioned the, the, you know, the CFPB with the, the president's appointee being sued by a bureaucrat inside the agency that claimed to be yeah. in control. You saw last year that the employees of the Environmental Protection Agency petitioned and publicly opposed President Trump's nominee for EPA, Administrator Pruitt, who's been doing you know, an amazing job. You saw in the Department of Justice that uh, really incredible moment where the acting AG, Sally Yates, refused to implement the president's uh, order in terms of immigration order that has now been upheld by the United States Supreme Court. So that's where I think 17 was, was the bureaucracy trying to revolt and in many ways, you know, sabotage the administration. But as things have moved forward and President Trump has more of his personnel in place, now we see him getting momentum, really getting on his feet. And I think 2018 is going to be a a great year of potential for what less Washington, D.C. can do in terms of growing our prosperity and helping Americans. I think that's right. People often forget that the nature of bureaucracies is not just inefficiency. 
but blocking any innovation that threatens the future of the bureaucracy, right? It doesn't right. matter the bureaucracy, whether it's in the United States, whether it's here in Texas, whether it's in the Soviet Union, I say with a sarcastic smile, but it's true. And you can, in other words, it doesn't matter the time or the place when you have a bureaucracy. Now in the United States, in the federal government, numbering 2.1 million people, they are going to protect their turf. And they might even be people who are neighbors and friends and good people. You know, we're, we're not questioning motivation or intention. We're looking at, as, as you suggested, Rob, just the prima facie evidence that what they are doing is blocking innovation. And it's important to keep in mind that that innovation is, is attempted to be implemented in order to promote liberty. And so you might complete that syllogism by saying that bureaucracies are opposed to liberty. If that's the case, and I know you'll agree with that, then what are the worst examples? So for our average listener who's following politics, interested in policy, generally agrees with us, or maybe doesn't agree with, with that statement and looking for some evidence, what would be two or three of the worst examples, the most egregious cases of the federal bureaucracy getting in the way of my liberty, your liberty, Drew, <clears throat> and anyone's in America. The first thing that comes to mind, it's very personal because it was a, a matter that uh, the Texas Public Policy Foundation was directly involved. And that has to do with our recent victory in the Red River lawsuit. Uh, this was a situation where in 2009, the Bureau of Land Management, which manages federal lands in Oklahoma, decided for itself that its territory overlapped into Texas and just simply declared that approximately 90,000 acres along a 116-mile stretch of the Red River inside of Texas, private property, deeded private property that in many cases had been owned for generations, just belonged to the federal government, uh, encompassing people's homes, people's you know ranches that have been you know for generations. For, that happened in 2009. The Texas Public Policy Foundation, we became involved in 2015 after those landowners and neighbors for six years had been trying to work this out with the federal government as the Bureau of Land Management just kept moving forward with taking their property. We built a coalition. We filed a lawsuit. We sued and stopped the land grab. But my point in saying this is, one, to highlight this great outcome for our clients but that it took two years of litigation and even the entirety of 2017 under this administration to finally win the case. That even once we had the turnover uh, between the past administration with President Trump coming in, the entrenched bureaucracy would not let go. And so really we had to, to bare knuckle brawl them all the way to the brink of trial uh, before they surrendered. But, you know, I don't fault at all the leadership. I know that given the size of federal government, this issue is very small in scope and that the decision making was not being made at the top, but was being made by these career bureaucrats and entrenched persons that uh, that carried over and uh, were really not accountable to anyone but themselves. Mm -hmm. Drew, what would you highlight? You know, the first thing that comes to mind for me, and that's a great that's a great case study by Rob um, and how, you know, a, a federal regulation truly and deeply impacts people's lives and their liberty. 
one of the things that I think is sort of broadly speaking, uh, and it has a connection to Congress, and I know this will eventually get to that point as well, but another personal area where our liberties are under attack comes from what happened with the passage of Obamacare. And a lot of people, you know, out there may be listening and everybody is you're either nodding your head or you're rolling your eyes, depending on your perspective. But what Obamacare really was, and it was the bureaucrats, it was the uh, regulators that really turned Obamacare into, I would argue, the monster that it is today. Obamacare is really all about regulating what our health insurance has to look like from a federal perspective. It's basically telling 320 million Americans what your coverage has to look like, what insurance companies have to offer you. And we're not allowed in the United States of America, and this it's crazy to think about this, we are not allowed to purchase health insurance tailored to our specific health care needs. Especially under Obamacare. Right? Especially under Obamacare. And so it, because of that, you've got – and Kevin, you'll appreciate this as well. When they were rolling out the regulatory apparatus after passage of Obamacare and you had a myriad of mandates that are driving up everyone's premiums and, and deductibles, the regulators and the bureaucrats at HHS were using some of the mandates to, to force Catholic charities to provide – contraception mandates that violated their religious liberty. That's about as unconscionable uh, an action that I can possibly think of where you have a, a regulatory apparatus. You have bureaucrats that are just wantonly just infringing on people's First Amendment rights with a law that Congress passed. And so that's an instance here. It's obviously a very uh, personal one, but it's an instance where Congress is working hand in hand with sort of the unaccountable professional bureaucratic class to impose its one-size-fits-all vision on all Americans that in turn takes away uh, people's conscience rights, which when you when you view it from that prism, uh, it, it's something that I think strikes to the core of what people really don't like about government. And and I think, you know, Rob gave an excellent example. I think healthcare is a, this is a, obviously a, a very personal and eminent example, but then you've got things like the Department of Education and you know, forcing teachers to adhere to certain standards from a federal perspective. You've got uh, the National Labor Relations Board holding, you know, franchisees accountable for the actions of contractors. And fortunately, that rule has been recently rescinded. But uh, there's just case after case after case of these things in almost every policy area. One of the things I come back to and the analogy I have is, is riding the ship. And I think the overall theme of what's happening in with this administration in Washington, D.C., is a restoration of the separation of powers and the balance between the three branches of government that is hard written into the Constitution. And in many ways, from a 30,000-foot level, a lot of the problems that we saw from the past administration, I think, tie back directly to the way that the branches of government got out of balance where you had, you know, the Congress, which under Article I of the Constitution is vested with legislative powers, basically quit acting, quit passing legislation, quit engaging, and really giving license to the executive branch under then-President Obama to be very aggressive in adopting all of the rulemaking and growing the size of and power of the executive branch. Meanwhile, Congress lockdown on itself, didn't engage, didn't take the opportunity to set that right. Uh, you know, the New York Times really considered President Obama's legacy as the growth of the executive order. 
And so, and then at the same time, you had this judiciary that started to step in itself and really take over the role of Congress as you had very activist judges start to put themselves in the role of super legislators. And so that that imbalance led to the unaccountability, which really led the the Washington, D.C. behemoth to, to churn forward. And one of the accomplishments that I want to highlight for this is the recent passage of the tax bill uh, that was signed by the president at the end of last year. Certainly, there's a big discussion we could have on the substance, but one of the big accomplishments is, and it took, look, it took all of 2017 to get there, but Congress passed a meaningful bill and it got signed by law into president, by the president. And we really haven't seen that in the United States in you know, nearly seven, eight years. And so, you know, hopefully we're seeing a pullback in the power of the executive brands. Hopefully we can now see Congress reengage itself in its role. Mm-hmm. And I think that that debate and and balance will be, be good for, for the American people. Yeah, I think the tax reform example is good. I want to come back to that momentarily. Before we move to that specific example, though, I want to hear from each of you what you think Congress's role is in allowing the administ—the <clears throat> excuse me, the administrative state, the bureaucracy, to grow as large and and to grow as large as quickly as it has, and then implicit in that question is what can we do to change it? First thing Congress what should Congress do to change it. First thing Congress has to do instead of talking about their Article One authority and and they spend a lot of time talking about it is just do it. Mm-hmm. That's the most important thing. I mean it. You know, there there are members of Congress that are rightfully trying to introduce they call it the Article One project and all, and it's fantastic. It's basically Congress has recognized that they have ceded their authority mm-hmm. to the bureaucrats and to the administrative state. But unfortunately, Congress is doing what Congress does best, which is just talking instead of taking action. And the best thing Congress can do in this environment, and this gets back to a little bit of the chaos that we mentioned at the beginning, the best thing Congress I think can do is to adopt a vision. You know, I think there's a there's a verse in Proverbs where this says, where there is no vision, the people perish. And that vision is reasserting control over the federal government because they are vested, as Rob pointed out, with that authority by the American people. And whether that's repealing regulations and, you know, hats off to them for last year for using the Congressional Review Act to repeal, you know, over a dozen really, really bad regulations. But they could be even more aggressive. They could be introducing, you know, sunset legislation to have a whole slew of onerous environmental regulations sunset after, you know, three or four years. They could be, uh, you know, working with commissions to go through and identify all these various regulations that are harmful to, to individual industries and businesses. Work with the private sector in that regard and work hand in hand with the administration and really try to roll this stuff back instead of sitting around and, and talking about it. Um and, you know, I think I think the president is very interested in that, candidly. I mean, he, he understands this with his background. And uh, I know the, the administration has taken a lot of pride in their approach on how regulations negatively impact you know, families and businesses and, and, and folks trying to, to engage in that entrepreneurial spirit. And I think there's a, a an opportunity to really tap into that, work together between the legislative and the executive branch and with the American people to, to move forward and, and reclaim their liberty. Two things. There's two things that I would mention that I think could 
would be the first on my list. One is to have the leadership, the current leadership, look to eliminate many of the procedural rules in Congress that are really being abused as a way of preventing any policies from moving forward. They all happen in secret. Nobody understands how they work. It happens behind closed doors. You know, as as a funny anecdote, uh, if you ever watch C-SPAN, you'll notice that it's now only focused on the person that's speaking on the podium. And C-SPAN used to have a camera that could rotate and it would rotate and would show that there's nobody else in the room. <laughs> and the public got upset by that. And so C-SPAN was fo- forced to only focus its camera on the speaker because there is no more debate anymore. There is no more discussion and nothing moves forward unless, you know, in the public eye. And these rules that prohibit there from being the debate I think we should see floor debates. I think we should see all 435 members of the House, all 100 members of the Senate on the floor proposing amendments, debating the amendments, voting on the amendments. Everyone gets their say. We can hash it out. The American people can see the debate and discussion. And then there can be an end product that moves forward. And if we don't like it as citizens, we can go to the ballot box and elect our voice in the electoral process. So one is eliminating those procedural rules that have really allowed Congress to cease acting as a deliberative body. But the second thing that I would do is Congress needs to pass a budget and a spending bill. Again, let's get rid of the procedural rules to make this be able to come to the floor. But keep in mind that Congress has not passed a budget since 2010. And all we keep doing is these continuing resolutions and debt debt limit, ceiling limit, you know, things to push it along. But let's get our financial house in order. And Congress has the power of purse. And I think the policy decisions on how to spend my tax dollars, if that can happen in the open, would be, you know, great in debating cutting spending, cutting the size of the federal government and uh, making that transparent to the American people. Mm -hmm. You know, the last time the budget for the Department of Education and the Department of Health and Human Services was debated and passed on the floor of both the House and the Senate was 2007. That's just reprehensible. I think most of our listeners, even those who follow the news and would describe themselves as political types, would be surprised by that or at least reminded by it or about it. Why is that? Why hasn't Congress passed a budget in several years and something as important as the Department of Education and important, maybe positive or negative. <laughs> yeah, correct. As, we'll come back to that in another episode. <laughs> I know you want to talk about that. Why, why hasn't that been debated in now 11 years? It depends on whom you ask. Some say that it's because of the polarization of Obamacare and what that did in 2010. Um, because if you're, if you're someone who's opposed to Obamacare um, – and you go to the floor and you're debating the, the HHS appropriations bill, you don't believe any money should be appropriated for it. However, if, if one party votes to, to not appropriate funds and another party votes to fully fund, then you're looking at a situation where technically the, they shut down. 
if you can't come to an agreement, this is the whole government shutdown fear that people have. Mm-hmm. And you know, so a lot of members will point to that and say, well, this is too polarizing. We just have to, to Rob's point, pass a continuing resolution and you know, we, we can't get to this. They'll pass these things out of committee, but they never come to the floor. Only a handful will. Uh, the real reason for, for that, and there, some of that is true, but the real reason as well is uh, we have uh, taken away their ability to a great degree to work behind the scenes uh, with earmarks and grease the skids to grow government, mm-hmm. which is a positive thing in my opinion. Um, but they have not been forced to make that transition to move to the floor and publicly and openly debate these issues. And largely, particularly when it comes to the, the health and human services portion of it, they'll point to the passage of Obamacare as being too polarizing. But the real reason is they can no longer work behind the scenes to grow government and to pass handouts out you know, to specific districts in order to, to pass these large government funding bills. And I think the, the way to, to, to counter that and to respond to that and to solve that problem uh, is is to really push on Congress to go and have these open floor debates, like Rob was saying, like force these folks to come in, sit down there with all 435 members, and let's hash it out, let's debate it. I think that's what the American people expect, uh, and I think that is exactly what needs to happen. How do we how do we make that happen? Because one of the things we like to talk about on the, this podcast is reading reality truthfully, mm-hmm. which I think the two of you have done a great job of. But then secondly what the solutions are, and in particular solutions that our listeners who don't necessarily do this every day like we do, can do. Is it as simple, for example, as someone calling their member of Congress and saying, I find this absurd. I, you know, if, if I don't have a family budget month to month or year by year, I'm going to spend more money than what I have. It's just human nature. It, surely it's not that simple. It's not, but uh, it. I'm not going to say that's not part of the solution because sure. civic engagement is always something we should be we should be you know encouraging and you know Rob I know Rob's got some thoughts on this but from my perspective too a little bit of it has to be a recognition that you know the government shuts down two days a week anyway <laughs> right I mean there's this fear that if the government shuts down that what does that mean well that means that you know all of a sudden the United States military is no longer standing guard right and no longer on post that's just not the reality of the situation. When we saw the government shut down in 2013, it was really just a 17% slowdown. 83% of the federal government was still on autopilot. And the rest of it, they went through and they identified who's essential, who's not essential, what services are essential. And I dare say most people probably didn't notice too much in those three weeks in terms of life changing. And so I think there's got to be a recognition by really all parties that sometimes this is what happens. The government shuts down because you can't come to an agreement on budget levels and and you can't come to an agreement on substance and, and what should be in these bills. And that's okay. It's part of a healthy debate. And I think we've got to get back to an understanding of what that means. A couple thoughts on that is, is one, in addition to individual engagement, um, I will say organizations like ours, like the Texas mm-hmm. Public Policy Foundation, we exist to be the voice of limited government, the voice of free market principles, the voice of liberty. Uh, here in Texas over the past 25, 28 years, we've been transformative in how we've been impactful at the, the Texas Capitol in being that voice for the people when nearly everyone else in the Capitol is a lobbyist for a special interest for one particular group. You know, we stand there for limited conservative free market principles, and we are taking that voice. We've expanded that role into Washington, D.C. But, you know, 
sometimes you have to have a negative to have a positive, mm-hmm. I guess is the way I think about it. And I think there's also leadership that gets involved in standing for principle and dealing with the consequences on the short term for the long term game. You know, from a conservative perspective, you know, I believe in limited government. I believe in spending restraint and fiscal restraint. I believe, you know, in in staying within the boundaries of the Constitution. There are a majority of elected officials in Washington, D.C. that were elected on those same promises. And if there is the opposition, if the procedural rules allow for there to be gridlock that prohibits those principles from moving forward, we need to decide, we need to have our leadership decide where that line is and where, you know, we're going to insist on the other side making concessions to move that forward. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be more than just a 17% slowdown. It needs to be something that's going to make the American people engage and be angry and demand that things get done. And I don't want you know that to hurt anyone. I don't want it to, to be damaging to our country. But uh, I think we're at that point where there has to be that line in the sand, as, as was drawn here at the Alamo you know, many years ago, taking us back to Texas. And we need to hold firm. And we need to make you know, the other side feel the heat. We need to feel the heat. And we need to, to you know, stand as firm on our principles that we claim to hold as, as the other side has in, in pushing for more government, more spending, and so forth. Well, thank, thanks to both of you for giving us some concrete examples or, or ways we can work on this. Let's go back to tax reform. And to frame that, in spite of all of the problems we've been talking about just now, and in spite of all of the challenges and what we might call opportunities for reform in the think tank world, we have this huge and historically important piece of legislation, imperfect as almost every piece of legislation in history has been because it's a human enterprise, but historically significant and positive. And I would like for the two of you to analyze that kind of high level for the average person. And then Drew, in particular, I'd like for you to talk about the role that you had. I know you're not going to take credit uh, more than what's due, but you're due some credit on one particular component of the tax reform bill regarding education. But Rob, why don't we start with you and give us two or three high level points about the historical significance of tax reform, but also what does that mean moving forward that in spite of all of these challenges that something in fact can get done in Washington, D.C. when leadership is lined up? Well, I'd highlight the fact that with the the tax cut bill that was just passed by Congress and signed into law by the president, over 80 percent of all Americans feel a benefit from that bill. You know, let's be clear, you know, uh, this is not a special interest carve out for the the top earners. Uh, This is something over 80 percent of Americans. But what one particular thought and you know the the rate for everybody decreases uh you certainly are going to have families that benefit from the expansion of the the tax credit for children but i want to particularly highlight the decrease in the corporate tax rate to 21 percent that puts it below the worldwide average and my crystal ball looking forward also looks in the past and during the past 13 14 years the state of texas has had one of the lowest tax and regulatory schemes in the United States. And we've seen amazing growth 
as businesses and people have flocked to Texas from other states, have left the burdensome regulatory high tax policies of California and Illinois and New York. Well, now the entire United States has taken that same type of approach. And already you're seeing other countries around the world respond in fear and shock that the United States has made itself even more competitive. And they're trying to adopt policies to keep the businesses that have fled the high federal tax policy of the U.S. to their countries that are now coming back. Uh, And so I think that that is just going to open the floodgate of jobs, prosperity, and economic growth in this country. Yeah, I mean, in the last 11 years, Texas has created more than one in five of all the new jobs, new non-farm jobs. And that's the Texas model, and it's clearly a success. It clearly creates the kind of growth we need. Um, One of the components in the tax bill that – I'm especially proud of is one that Senator Cruz helped usher through, which is the expansion of the 529 college savings accounts uh, now to K through 12 expenses. Uh, This is, I think, one of the more potent uh, policy successes that conservatives have seen in a long time, uh, particularly when it comes to the education sphere. It's it's one of those approaches that I think is going to see mass benefit to pretty much every family of every income income strata. And basically what the bill does is, you know, if you're if you're using a, a 529 savings account to be able to put after-tax money away uh, to save up for your children's college educations, you can now use that for private school tuition. You can now use that for, um, you know, tutoring expenses if, if, you're, if your child goes to public school. And, you know, th- these are things that I think uh, Americans like to see coming from you know, Washington, D.C., which is giving them more opportunity, giving them a, a greater ability to use their hard-earned dollars in a way that benefits them and their family. So that's exciting as well. Right. And it just reminds me that one of the principles of the conservative movement is that you believe in the ability of the average person to take care of themselves. And it's not a cold-hearted way of saying that those who are vulnerable and needy are going to be abandoned. That's not what we believe as conservatives. But we do believe that government has gotten in the way. And even if you ascribe the best of intentions to those policymakers who created what's now known as the dependency state or the welfare state, what it's done is really prevent people from developing those skills and those abilities to make good decisions. In other words, it's gotten in the way of their liberty. And so what we love about this 529 component of the of the text bill is that it is underscoring that we trust people, we trust parents, believe it or not, to make the right decisions for their kids. That's crazy talk. It is crazy talk. Will every parent make every single time the right decision for their child? No, because all of us are just humans. But boy, will every bureaucrat make the right decision every time. We know from history and now millions of examples that the answer is no. And not because they're bad people, but because of the nature of bureaucracy and because we are, as humans, wired to be territorial. And I think what we're seeing is the beginning of breaking through that territoriality of the American bureaucracy. But to a point that you made earlier, Rob, it took a commander-in-chief, President of the United States, who has a unique way of communicating, and in particular, a way of going around the mainstream media via Twitter to just beat the drum of piercing this administrative state. And that's one way that 
he applies political pressure. I think of it as the 21st century example of the whistle stop tour. So when presidents in the 1800s, all the way until the mid 20th century, people forget, needed to emphasize that they had a priority and come hell or high water, it was going to be passed. They got on a train and they traversed the country. He doesn't have to do that. And so I, while the, the, the medium is new, the tactic is very old. It's a modern and, bully puppet pulpit. Exactly. Yeah. And he knows that he needs to use it. And, and really, one of the great things about our system, we take away conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, and just sort of look at the beauty of America as an idea. It's that we do believe in diffused power, at least balanced power, but diffused is even better because it's just totally fractured. But we also understand that there does have to be a leader. And as our founders wrote eloquently, when we elect a president who's, and just speaking generally here, has the ability to develop a, a majority following and concern and support for a particular idea, then it's very likely it's going to pass through Congress. I say all of that to frame this question. What's going to happen in 2018? Here at the foundation, we're not worried about elections, at least until after the fact. What's going to happen with the legislative agenda in Congress? What will we see the president emphasize in terms of legislative priorities and in particular, more of the same regarding trying to dismantle the administrative state? Just, just kind of paint a picture briefly for our listeners. Drew, we'll start with you. So they're actually hashing that out right now. Um, the president has, uh, I believe, sequestered himself off at Camp David with uh, both the speaker and the majority leader, uh, as well as a few other sort of the, the top congressional leaders to really hammer out what that agenda should be. And, you know, um, I mentioned earlier about the importance of vision. And, you know, that's that's obviously uh, the key question here, because you have individuals in the House who kind of want to move forward on welfare reform. Um, and in lifting people out of poverty, promoting the dignity of work and, and things that we think are uh, very important, obviously, for, for opportunity and for uh, improving people's lives. And then you've got the Senate is, is in a position where they want to focus more on infrastructure and transportation. You know, I think what we're going to see from this is, uh, uh, first off, you can't walk away from Obamacare and health care. Um, people's premiums have been going through the roof for the past five years, and that's not going to change even though the individual mandate got repealed in the tax bill. So they're going to have to find a way to, I think, come back at that issue, whether that's through um, a sort of a executive order on short-term health plans that the previous administration had rescinded or potentially going back to use budget reconciliation to give it another try to repeal Obamacare. But I think what, regardless if they do that or don't, uh, they're going to have to to come at healthcare, they're going to have to find a way to, to, to lower healthcare costs. And I think they're also going to have to find, you know, a way to move the president's agenda forward in a more, I guess you could say, bipartisan fashion, uh, just given the current dynamics and what that looks like with regard to the administrative state and rolling that back. I think it's just a giant question mark right mm -hmm. now. I do agree with Drew that in some ways it's uncharted territory with where we are going, that in prior to 2017, the Federal Register is the online publication that prints all of the new rules that are promulgated by the executive branch agencies. And in 2014, it was approximately 80,000 pages of new regulations that were generated just in 2014. And that number of pages 
has remained pretty consistent uh, every year for a number of years. 2017, that number was half. And we already now looking back know that not only has President Trump repealed using the Congressional Review Act, using executive order, repealed a number of regulations, but that there were approximately 1,500 regulations and guidances and directives that were in the pipeline that he stopped, that never got adopted. And with now what is slated in moving forward, there are additional regulations that that the administration has already slated for repeal. But where I see that there's uncharted territory is where the executive branch is going to be churning less and adopting less new regulations. And, and business and industry and the American people, we really don't know what that feels like. We don't know what that looks like or what that impact will be on the American economy, except I can say without any exaggeration, it will be great. It will be very positive when you have Washington, D.C. growing less as far as expansion of the administrative state. And I think it just remains to be seen, you know, how vertical that will cause this country to to take off. And I have a lot of optimism for what that will look like. Yeah, I do, too. And yet, do y'all see the opposition to dismantling the administrative state particularly increasing? Or have we seen the the greatest volume of that opposition? I was just recently... uh, interviewed by the a reporter with the New York Times that had a similar question that was asking about what the Obama's regulatory repeal looked like in 2018. And uh, my response to the reporter was that I see the fight shifting from Article 2 to Article 3. Article 2 is the executive branch mm-hmm. of the Constitution. Article 3 is the judiciary. And you're already seeing that. You saw it in the past administration where Conservative states like Texas were very active in suing the Obama administration to stop the growth of the regulations. Uh, But you've also already seen some of the progressive states that have already gone to especially very liberal jurisdictions in suing to try to stop President Trump's repeal of the Obama regulations and, and the status quo. There's currently a tremendous number of vacancies in the judiciary. I think President Trump has done a a very uh, amazing job in appointing rule of law, constitutional, uh, strict constructionists, uh, men and women that are committed to upholding the law, uh, not legislating from the bench. But there's a lot of other vacancies that need to be filled. And so... Until we can get those 150-something vacancies across the nation fully staffed up and fully filled, uh, then you'll continue to have uh, states like New York, states like California, uh, left-of-center groups try to use and abuse the federal court system to stop this, this path towards prosperity and, and this effort to, to rein in Washington, D.C., Good. A couple of final questions as we wrap up. One of them is for you specifically, Drew. You are instrumental in our D.C. work because of your involvement in our Center for Tenth Amendment Action. 
Would you take a couple of moments to explain what that center does, and then in particular explain the role of the states in this process? We've talked about the role of the executive branch, the role of the judiciary, Congress playing a role, but the states have a real important role. Yeah, I would actually argue the states should have the most important role. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Tenth Amendment makes that very clear. The powers not reserved to the federal government are given over to the states. And that's a pretty lengthy list when you really look at it. I mean, the federal government is really uh, only supposed to be dealing with the, the powers explicitly outlined. You know, originally we had four departments, Treasury and Department of Defense, Department of State and the you know Department of Justice. I mean, that's that's basically what the founders envisioned in terms of the role of the federal government. And, you know, the Tenth Amendment Center, our job is uh, to really to to keep not just Washington accountable, but to analyze what's coming out of Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. and determine how we can either protect Texas from federal overreach or we can empower Texas to have an influence in Washington, D.C. to diminish the role of Washington, D.C. So what we do on a daily basis, and we did it last year extensively in, in healthcare and in education and on the regulatory front, uh, was really engage in not just the congressional legislative process, but engage in what the administration was doing and try to ascertain, you know, the health care bills, for example, were they going to be beneficial for Texans? Was this a real repeal of Obamacare? And fortunately, the answer was no. Um, however, when it came to the regulatory apparatus and what Congress was doing to roll back uh, a lot of the previous administration's regulations, we were able to say this is going to have a positive impact on Texans. And that's that's our job. Our job is to really defend Texas, right, at the end of the day and defend Texas from from Washington bureaucrats who just don't know Texans and can't possibly create policy um, in a way that is tailored to the specific needs of a state like Texas. Well said. Customarily here on the Foundation Podcast, we conclude each episode by leaving our listeners with some some things to do, you know, what we call here internally action items. Now, listeners can decide that they don't want to take any action. That's entirely up to them because, after all, we do believe in liberty. But you two guys are not only sharp and do your job as well, but you're very much focused on what action items should be. So an action item might be a book to read. It might be a website you visit. It might be very specific things you can do. Of course, we don't get into campaign advocacy here, so you can't say that. But give us one or two, each of you, for our listeners to think about doing regarding what we've discussed today. I think the very first item, and I will probably always say this, is uh, be, be engaged. Be engaged in what's going on, um, whether that's you, you know reading you know websites that are you know giving you good information in terms of what's happening in Washington D.C. Know what's going on, and make sure you're not just listening to the echo chamber. Listen to all sides. Try mm-hmm. to get as much information as possible, um, and then let your elected officials know where you stand on policy. Know how you feel about these things. They need to hear from all of us. Uh, because they're hearing from a million different people uh, with, a, with a million different sort of agendas. And I think it's just very important to be very uh, engaged in the process. So that's the first thing I would recommend. And then the second thing, particularly for those who have a, a conservative mindset, uh, the, the listeners out there who sort of agree with our philosophical perspective on the role of government, is be very focused on uh, on, on the debt and on the spending situation. And 
what we've seen, unfortunately, over the past 20 or 30 years is there's been sort of a bipartisan addiction to spending. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be when mentioning earlier what the vision this year is going to be. I think the danger for this president, I think the danger for this Congress is going to be passing legislation that only adds to our debt problems and only adds to our deficit. And we need to be very cognizant of that, particularly as people who like to pride ourselves of being fiscally conservative. Uh, and that what that really means is that Congress should also be focused on reducing spending and reducing the um, policy areas that uh, they have control over. We want to send that back to the states, obviously, the 10th mm-hmm. Amendment Center. And so that would be my second action item is uh, make sure that we uh, are engaged in uh, ensuring our elected officials aren't spending the next generation into bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Well said. Rob? I would add to that, and very well said by by Drew. We saw just recently in the news that the balance of power in the Virginia legislature came down literally to a coin flip, that the very last legislative race that would have decided whether the majority was Republican or Democrat, that one election tied. After two recounts, it tied. And so they drew a name out of a hat, and that person won, and the the victor then determined which party had the majority in their, their House of Representatives. So my first encouragement for all people, and I think this is part of the engagement that, that Drew mentioned, is vote. Participate. We have primary season coming up. We have a, nationally a tremendous amount of people that have offered themselves in, in service. Of course, you have the elections in, in November. And all of what we've been talking about has been about how government impacts our daily lives. And it's true from everything from your city council all the way up to, to the White House. And I think as well, to be so in addition to that, I would say vote and participate and engage in that manner, but then to find a way to to engage, uh, either become active in an organization like ours, like many others that are out there that have very clearly defined missions and goals uh, because there is strength in numbers, but also when you do have the opportunity to engage with, uh, with those that have been elected to represent us, be specific and direct and demand accountability. Uh, I think that was done in 2016. I think that's continuing to be done and we can all out our collective voices uh, to that chorus. Rob Henneke, Drew White, thank you very much for an engaging episode. There's no doubt in my mind that you'll be back. And in the meantime, keep fighting for liberty. Take care. Thanks again for being part of the Foundation Podcast, which is sponsored and produced by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Visit us at texaspolicy.com to learn more.